0: Hi there, this is the Reverend Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire. And this is Love to Tell the Story. Well, I've been saying it a lot over the last few weeks, and I'll say it again. God gives us life. God gives us love. And God gives us a name so that we can truly know him. And God gives us a law. And that law has a whole lot to say about the way that we worship. Continuing on in our current sermon series that we've been calling Back to the Basics of God, here's a second message about the Ten Commandments, specifically the Third and Fourth Commandment, and it's based on Exodus 20, verses 7 through 11. Well, Let me begin this morning by reiterating a bit of what I said in last Sunday's message about the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments of God. That they are the precepts by which we learn how to follow the Lord our God. This liberating, redeeming God who did lead his people Israel out of the land of Egypt out of the house of Israel. The same God who continues even now to lead you and me along the pathways we need to go. And he does it word by word, law by law, and in that, promise by promise. As such then, these are also divine gifts of grace. That's how we are approaching these 10 commandments, as divine gifts of grace, that most certainly apply to the third and fourth commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God and remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. There is a man by the name of Paul Dixon, who some years ago wrote a book entitled Names, a collector's compendium, of rare and unusual, bold and beautiful, odd and whimsical names. As the title suggests, this book is a collection of literally hundreds of strange and unusual names, a great many of which end up being uniquely appropriate to the person or the people involved. For instance, Dixon found two police officers, who were partners in fact, Whose last names were Go Forth and Catch 'em. <laughs> Likewise, and I love this one, there were two men who ran a church equipment company, <clears throat> and their names were O'Neill and Prey. <laughs> there was also, Dixon reports, a barber who was named Dan Druff. Think about that for a minute. A podiatrist, a foot doctor whose name was Jeff Treadwell, and perhaps my favorite of all, a window washer in Montreal. True story, who sadly fell from a high altitude while he was washing windows, while he was doing his job, and his name was, wait for it, Will Drop. All that aside, and believe me, I know puns are the lowest form of humor, but they're my favorite form of humor. All this aside, Dixon also goes on in this book to talk about all the little nicknames, love handles, he calls them, speaking of puns, that couples and families create that are born out of the affection and utter joy that they take in one another. They may have a given name, but nobody calls them that because from the time they are babies, uh, this nickname has stuck. And even as adults, adult, they're known by those names. And then there are, of course, many names that are the result of that particular family's history and tradition. Uh, to say nothing as a desire in one way or another to set one's family apart from the rest, at least in terms of how they're known. There was a family in a prior church that I served uh, whose names were all very different, but they all had every male in that family, and some of the women, too, had the same three initials. And you really had to be uh, really digging deep to realize that. But I did enough enough weddings with that family and a few memorial services that all of a sudden it clicked with me. Wait a minute. Those initials are all the same. My wife has a family member uh, who was a a well-known pastor. He has since passed on and and a missionary. And he he and his wife named all their children not only with biblical names, but biblical names beginning with the letter D. So it was. every family kind of sort of has their own traditions where this is concerned. Mostly, however, a name is chosen for a child in the fervent hope that that child will be undeniably and unmistakably known by that name. And furthermore, with the hope that they will always be respected in that name, out of a belief that I think most of us share, that a person's name ought to represent three things, is reputation, character, and authority. It's the same reason that wise expectant parents choose names for their children very carefully, because one thing you don't want to have happen is to have that kid's name become something that they get teased about or negatively labeled by for the rest of their born days. So as the saying goes, what's in a name is actually very important. And friends, nowhere is that of more importance than with the name of the Lord our God, which, as you might recall from the beginning of this sermon series, is Yahweh, meaning I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am. This is, as we've said before, the name that God calls himself It's the name that God gives to Moses and to us and is is the name that establishes our relationship with God. And so, in that, it is the expression of God's eternal nature in relationship with our finite humanity. And given all that, it only makes sense that right after God gives us those words about having no other gods before him and not worshiping false idols. The next, and I'll translate it here the way I suspect most of us do translate it and remember it, you shall not, thou shalt not, take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, I also suspect that when most of us think about taking the Lord's name in vain, the first thing that comes to our mind is, well, swearing. Many are those, perhaps even us, some of us in this very room, who came to know the taste of life, boy, in one's mouth, Because in some moment of anger or desperation as a child, they ended up using a particular adjective that included God's name. And of course, this is something, frankly, that a whole lot of people have never grown out of. You know, there's rarely a day, and it's kind of sad actually, there's rarely a day when I don't hear on TV, in the movies, or even in conversation with people that really ought to know better, The names of God and Jesus Christ being used knowingly or, frankly, unknowingly as a curse word, or at the very least as one, albeit very common way, of showing amazement or surprise or wonder. To wit, how many people go to their phones to talk to somebody and use the initial OMG? Let's be clear here. And I want to go on record as saying so. Using God's name in this profane fashion is very much included in this commandment. But that said, friends, I have to ask you this morning. Is that the only reason that God has given this commandment? Do you think maybe there's a little more to it than just the inappropriate use of language? I would say, yes, there is. And it has everything to do with who God is to us. I want to quote M. Craig Barnes of Princeton Seminary here. He says, if God is to be revealed as the liberator, the one who is committed to our freedom, then to take the Lord's name in vain is to do anything that binds and hurts people in the name of the Lord. Because God has already revealed that's not who God is. Actually, you know, I think that's why some versions of Scripture, including some of the more modern ones, translate the third commandment as, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God or you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Because there's all sorts of ways to misuse or utterly diminish the name that God himself has given us so that we can better know him, so that we can grasp somehow his infinite nature. There's a lot of ways we misuse it. There is, for instance, the act of swearing an oath, formally or informally, and doing so in God's name. You know, you hear people say all the time, I swear to God. But swearing to God without any intention of honoring that oath. There's claiming God as our guide and inspiration, even as our actions prove otherwise. And then there's using God as a defense, the justification, if you will, For doing what we darn well know is not at all godly. You can fill in the blanks here any way you want, folks. In other words, it all comes down to this. Well, you know, God wouldn't mind if I do this just this once. After all, God wants me to be happy, don't you know? And it goes on and on. But here's the thing. I would dare say that the absolute worst way we can take the Lord's name in vain actually comes down to the original Hebrew word in this verse that is translated as in vain, which is the word shav. Shav, yes, is translated as vain. But it's also the basis for the Hebrew words for empty for emptiness, for nothingness, for falsehoods, for lies, for lying, and, get this, for worthlessness. So in other words, friends, we have this name, Yahweh. Remember, it's like a prayer. It's to be spoken in a whisper. Yahweh. This wonderful name vocative word that God himself has given us that speaks to everything that is great and glorious and infinite and filled with this liberating and redeeming love. And so what would be the worst thing we could do with that name except to use it as though it were nothing? As though it were nothing at all. As though we could go ahead and use that sacred word As though it were nothing more than just another piece of slang. Just another pop culture catchphrase. As though diminishing the greatness of God in this day would ever serve to lift us up out of the places we are dwelling. Into the darkness in which we are mired. As though we could make our Lord's affirmation of I am into a way of justifying pointing a finger at another one of God's beloved creations and saying, You are. Or maybe more to the point, You aren't. As in, You aren't worthy. You aren't loved. You aren't ever going to be good enough for anyone, much less for God, as though the object of our worship is not Yahweh, but we ourselves. That's what happens when we take the Lord's name in vain, when we misuse God's name. You see, God's name is never to be diminished or dishonored with the kind of emptiness with which it is so often used. It is a name that is meant and should be proclaimed worshipfully with all of our praise and with God's purposes in our mind and heart. God's name is to be revered. A name that is to be treated with the utmost respect, As though every possible usage of that holy name involves, as we do say in this place, the act and attitude of worship. Speaking of great names, there's a Canadian pastor and author by the name of Daryl Dash. Is that a cool name or what? He has written that to revere God's name is to use it carefully to use it lovingly. Refuse dash says to use God's name flippingly, flippantly, or without thought. This extends to your prayer life and even he goes on to say your singing. Do you ever say grace without thinking about what you're praying? Do you ever sing a song about God without even thinking about what you're singing? Don't do it, he says. (laughs) I love that. But I also want to add here, this not only applies to the so-called worshipful part of our lives, that is what we do here on a Sunday morning, what we do amidst the spiritual discipline of our lives and living, our revering God and properly using God's name as an act of worship also applies to the ways that we treat one another. It is about how we love our neighbor as we profess to love God. It speaks to the ways we answer the call to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God in our zeal for such things. And it ever and always applies to being good stewards of all that we have been given, including the skill of the work we're called to do, including a portion of the first fruits of our particular harvest in life. And even, and might I add especially, to the time we have to spend. Which brings us to the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. The model for which, of course, is the six days of God's creation of heaven and earth, and the next day, the seventh day, set aside for rest. Therefore, it says in Exodus, and as Gail shared it with us today, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Now, there's a whole lot that can be said here about the Sabbath, or in Hebrew, the Shabbat. And it's really, frankly, much more than we have time for today. But, and there's a lot that I could say, especially about the increasing lack of any concept of the Sabbath in these days we live in. But suffice to say, for our purposes today, that God's commandment to observe a Sabbath day and to keep it holy is also in and of itself an act of worship. What's interesting to me at least is that the literal translation of Shabbat or Sabbath is to cease, to abstain, to stop, to cut it out. And if I might draw one more quote from Craig Barnes, one of my favorites in fact, what this means is according to this commandment, the pattern for our lives in each cycle of seven days ends up as being work, 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 work. cut it out. <laughs> cut it out. Barnes goes on to say that we usually think that the reason we get this day of rest from work is that we need to build up our energy to go back to work for the next six days. But here's the thing, that's not how our Yahweh intends for it to be. God did not rest out of fatigue, Barnes says. God rested to behold creation and to see its goodness and to call it good. And so the Shabbat is not merely a day off from our work. It's the opportunity to... To glory in it. To give praise and thanksgiving for God's presence and for all of his power. To rejoice in all that God has done for us in the previous six days. And to prayerfully and yet joyfully look toward what is yet to be. To take delight in everything that is yours and mine by the love and grace of God. And in and through to revere God's holy name as bringing it forth. To revere in God's holy name, never in vain emptiness or in false piety, but in celebration of the one who leads us onward along his pathways, who leads us not only step by step, but day by day, week by week, Sabbath, By Sabbath, word by word. It is worth noting, friends, that biblically speaking, there's not an awful lot of distinction made between the secular and the sacred. You know, we in churches talk about that all the time, about things being more secularly based and and those that are more sacred. But what we encounter along our journey as God's people, at least as scripture defines it, comes down to the difference between that which is sacred and that which is profane. Now think about that with me for a minute. No matter what it is we're talking about, the question always comes down to, is this what we're doing here? Is it something sacred or as it becomes something profane in its emptiness. By the lack of God dwelling within it. By that definition, there's a whole lot out there that we do that could be categorized as profane. But it also means if we're not careful. So much of what we do in here by sheer repetition or by rote or by a lack of attention to God's name can also be profane. Luckily, however, so much of the opposite is true as well. As you folks are well aware, I am one of these pastors that, while I very much appreciate in our worship the beauty and the spiritual power of what one might refer to as High church liturgy, you know, the, uh, the the prayers and praising, the lectionary, the way that we do call and response, all of it. All that said, over the years, I have come to discover that often the most sacred times of worship happen in, shall we say, the lowest of circumstances. I think of the kids that go to the Horton Center, the church camps. We had... Two kids go there this year and how their experience of worship is utterly changed by being up in those mountains, being together and celebrating the gifts of God in ways that some of them, these kids that go to this camp, have never experienced before, a sacred moment. I remember a time some years ago when I shared communion at the bedside of a cancer survivor, with a stale hamburger bun and orange juice that was just on the side of going bad. <laughs> and we did it because there wasn't any bread and wine, so to speak, in the house. And that woman really, really wanted to have communion. I remember some years ago how a tired and grubby group of the church's youth more or less took over a Sunday service after having done a 24-hour fast for hunger awareness. And they wanted to decorate the sanctuary with posters and, and, ch- and chain link uh, or paper chains and everything else. And, and they had some very clear and very creative ideas of what they wanted to do in that service. And I said, yes, but inside I'm going, I am going to be in such trouble with my deacons. And yet... I remember it to this day as being one of the most powerful worship experiences I ever, was a, ever had a privilege of watching, of worshiping in, especially when one of the youth stood up and said, what I have learned here is that I never will ever, ever again say I'm starving. For that matter, I remember a service not too long ago out in this parking lot. It happened this spring after months of remote worship, and as you might recall, everything, and I mean everything, went terribly, horribly wrong. And yet it was the week that I got back from having been with my wife and family after my father-in-law passed away. And there was something incredible about the ways that you folks reached out to us and in the ways that I felt the presence of God, even in the midst of all of that crazy trouble. It was a sacred moment. I mean, I could go on and on with examples of this. Just know that in each and every situation, there wasn't a whole lot of what I would consider to be proper worship etiquette, whatever that is. And I'm here to tell you that each and every one of those moments was a sacred time and place. And the Lord's name was most definitely not used in vain. Beloved, my dear, dear friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever it is you happen to be doing this week and whatever it is you happen to be doing, I hope and pray that the same can be said of you, that it will be sacred and that you are using the Lord's name with the reverence that that name deserves. And may your thanks And may our thanks be unto God. Amen and amen. And that's the message entitled, God's Law and the Way We Worship. And it was recorded during our August the 22nd service of worship at East Church, part of our current sermon series that we've entitled, Back to the Basics of God. Now, if you happen to be visiting New Hampshire this summer and you're looking for a place to worship, we'd love to have you join us at East Church. We gather every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, or if you prefer, you can always find us online via Facebook Live on our East Congregational Church Facebook page. Either way, I would love to have the chance to welcome you. And with that, we come to the close of another episode of this Love to Tell the Story podcast. I'm Michael Lowry, and I thank you so much for listening today. And until next time, stay safe, be well, and may God bless you with a great day every day. We'll talk to you soon.